Isaiah 50, verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples, that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. For the Lord God helps me, therefore I am not disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up to each other. Who has a case against me? Let him draw near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who is he who condemns me? Behold, they will all wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them. Who is among you that fears the Lord? That obeys the voice of his servant? That walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourselves with firebrands, walk in the light of your fire, and among the brands you have set ablaze. This you will have from my hand. You will lie down in torment. Lord, I'm thankful all these things are in your hands, as is your word this morning. And so, Holy Spirit, speak to us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, everybody wants to win. I'm not sure that there's anyone among us who prefers to be on the losing team, who really enjoys, you know, getting trounced. I don't enjoy it at all. You know, it's inherent in our nature to enjoy triumph and to relish victory. And it's funny how we even do this with our sports team. Many of you know I'm a huge Lakers fan. No t-shirts needed. I'm a huge Lakers fan. Purple and gold. And so, watching Oklahoma trounce L.A. several weeks back was a bit painful and a little disappointing. But I remembered a a quote from Jerry Seinfeld, a great theologian of the present age, (laughs) who once said, and, and I quote, Loyalty to any one sports team is pretty hard to justify. Seahawks. Gang, listen. <laughs> he says, because the players are always changing and the team can move to another city. You're actually rooting for the clothes when you get right down to it. You're standing and cheering and yelling for your clothes to be the clothes from the other city. Fans will be so in love with the player, but if he goes to another team, they boo him. This is the same human being in a different shirt. And they hate him now. Boo! Boo! Different shirt! Boo! (laughs) But that desire to win may be part of the reason why the servant songs are so shocking. And especially the third and the fourth servant songs, how they are so, so unsettling. The winning king, who would be the losing servant, he took off the shirt of glory to play with the skin of humility. And this we see in Jesus, unlike anywhere else I believe in the Hebrew Scriptures. This servant song and the one to come that we'll look at next week. We're into the third one. We've already considered two. The Messiah who serves, Isaiah 42, verses 11 through 17. 
The Messiah who saves, the servant who saves. We talked about last week, Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 6. But it's downhill for the next two servant songs. And so brace yourselves and be prepared. Because the things that are expressed in these songs are are upsetting. But even though this is downhill, it is a hill that we have to descend, even as Jesus was willing to go down before He would go up. And even as the perplexing pieces of this prophetic puzzle come together and the picture becomes more clarified than ever before in Jesus, we have to pause and wonder at the unpretentious humility of a God who would do what He did. Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. He says, church, Jesus is the model. Not only for each of us as individuals, but for us as a church. He is the model of how we are to function and how we are to be. Paul says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And you Bible students know he goes on then to describe Jesus' perilous descent into humanity, humility, obedience, and finally the cross. And Paul says, be this way. Be this way. Don't seek to be on the winning team. Be willing to lose that others might win. And I say, but I want glory. (laughs) I want to finish first. I want my team to win. Everybody does. But the servant of the Lord accomplishes this by losing everything. We talked about this a little bit on Wednesday night, this paradox. Before the Messiah, Jesus returns as the reigning king. He comes first as the rejected servant. Suffering before glory. Sacrifice before atonement. Blood before cleansing. Death before life. And this is the path that Jesus walked. The path that Jesus chose. And the path laid out before us this morning. But even in all of this sorrow and loss, there is incredible comfort. Remember, we're still in this whole section of the consolations, the comforts of God. Isaiah 40, verse 1, Comfort, oh comfort my people, he says. And the comfort in this particular servant song is as we look at the face of Jesus, we are comforted in how a disciple is sustained. Let's walk this through. Verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. We're looking at the face of Jesus and we begin with the tongue of disciples. The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples. The Hebrew word here for disciple, limud. Limud literally means learned, uh, trained, or taught. The plural form, limudim, means learned ones. He's given me the tongue of the learned, of the followers, of those who are trained. Jesus was in Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, Sukkot. And while he was there, he was doing what he always did. He was teaching. Jesus, even more than a healer, was a teacher. They called him rabbi. And as he taught, John tells us the Jews were astonished, wondering, John 7.15, how has this man become learned, having never been educated? How has he become limud? 
So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but His who sent me. This wasn't the first time Jews in Jerusalem were astonished by the teaching of Jesus. You know, at age 12, this story, His family was there for Passover. And after the feast, Mary and Joseph probably caravaned there and back and assumed He was was somewhere in the caravan. But they get a, a few days out and they realize He's not with them. So they hightail it back to Jerusalem. And for three days he had been missing. They looked everywhere for him. Finally they came to the temple. Luke chapter 2 verse 45 says, After three days they found him there in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Now, how do you answer it when someone asks you, what did Jesus do for the first 30 years of his life? I mean, typically the answer is, he was a carpenter. Right? He worked with wood. I mean, that's that's what he did. I would disagree. I would say Jesus was a language student. For those first 30 years, he was learning the tongue of disciples. Learning the tongue of those who are taught. Learning to speak the lingo, if you will. John 8.28, he said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. When did God teach Jesus? Somewhere back in the recesses of eternity? I would submit to you that back in the recesses of eternity, Jesus already knew everything. And as we talked about last week, He already knew everything as God. He did not, however, know everything as a man. Not to say that He lacked knowledge, but He did lack, I know this is difficult, but He did lack the experience of human flesh. Of being in this limited body. And so, when Jesus came and became flesh and dwelt among us, though fully God, He was also fully man, and He was taught of the Lord. He learned as a man learns of God, even though he already knew of God as God. Is that mind-blowing? Jesus said in John 14, 24, He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Oh, Rick, I thought Jesus and the Father were one back in the recesses of eternity. And I would say, yes, they were. And yes, they are. And yes, they were when Jesus walked on the face of the earth. But the flesh of Jesus learned. The Hebrew writer tells us, Hebrews chapter 5, look it up. And so he was taught by God. The Word made flesh learned the Word of God as a human. As God, he knew everything. But as man, Luke tells us in Luke chapter 2, he grew in wisdom and stature. He matured. He learned as a disciple. He developed, gang, the tongue of a disciple. Why? Well, you could say, he learned our lingo. He learned to speak our language. So that with human tongue, and as we talked about last week, human sympathy, he could offer a sustaining word to the weary ones. So when Jesus speaks into your life, into mine, when we even read Him speaking in the Word, there is a sympathy there, there is a human understanding there that sustains us, that encourages us, that one man walked this way and calls me to do the same. Let me take this a bit further. We have a hard time hearing directly from God. Can I get an amen on that? We have a hard time hearing directly from God. And the Bible tells us if we saw God with our own eyes, we would die. 
we die. We can't look at God and live. And I believe in Revelation chapter 1, when John saw Jesus, he did die. I mean, John just says he fell over, passed out, cold. And then Jesus woke him up. I think, it's just my opinion, but I think he died right there. He flatlined because he saw God in his glory. But then Jesus raised him up, strengthened him in the vision. If we saw him, we would die. What about if we truly heard right here this morning in the barn, the voice of the Lord, God's voice, Yahweh, speak. I think we wouldn't die, but we would freak out. Absolutely. Well, how do you know that? Because Israel did. The children of Israel were at Mount Horeb. And God was giving the Ten Commandments back in Exodus chapter 20. They're gathered around the mountain, and God wants to be with His people. You know, that's, that's why the tabernacle was set up in the middle of all the camps of Israel, because God wanted to be right in the middle of things. He wanted to be near His people, and He wanted to draw His people near to Him. And so He's given the Ten Commandments to Moses, and it says in Exodus chapter 20, verse 18, All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes, and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Yeah. And then they said to Moses, Speak to us yourselves and we will listen, but let not God speak to us or we will die. And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid, for God has come in order to prove you or test you, in order that the fear of Him may remain with you so that you may not sin. And so the people stood at a distance, while Moses approached the thick cloud where God was. And then the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen that I have spoken to you from heaven. And he would speak a little more. And then after that, Moses would get the rest of the law from God because the people could not take it. It was just too much for them. Gang, when God speaks in His supernatural tongue, it is too much to take in. And I say again, if we were to hear the voice of God speak today without a mediator, without His Spirit interceding, the Spirit of Christ, we would freak out. We need a mediator. We need one who knows the language of the disciple, who speaks with the tongue of disciples. 1 Timothy 2.5, Paul says, There is one God and there is one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. And that's why the Hebrew writer, at the very beginning of his letter, he tells us that God first spoke through the prophets. And then, in these last days, he has spoken to us how? Through his son. His son, who knew the tongue of disciples. His Son who speaks your language and mine. Jesus mediates the mercy of the Father. He intervenes with God's intentions in a voice we can hear and understand without fear. And so, speaking with the tongue of disciples, He is able to bring comfort and consolation to sustain His disciples in their weariness. Remember, Isaiah 42.3 tells us, A bruised reed He will not break, and a dimly burning wick He will not extinguish. By the way, that is why we learn as disciples. Don't miss this. This is why we learn the Word of God. Like Jesus, not to impress with our knowledge, not to puff up our spirits, but we know how to sustain a weary one with a word. 
We learn, and this is your prime motivation for studying the Bible, for getting Scripture down, for understanding the Word of God, that you may turn around and sustain a weary one with the Word. That you can speak with the words of Jesus to bring comfort and consolation and encouragement and exhortation to people around us. That's why we learn it. So that we can speak as disciples with the tongues of disciples. And so he says, you've given me the tongue of disciple that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He says, he awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. And so he has the tongue of disciples. He also has the ear of a servant. The ear of a servant. The Bible says, morning by morning, you awaken me. And we see this in Jesus, Mark 1.35. In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up. He left the house and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. How many of you have tried the early morning devotional thing and failed miserably? <laughs> Mornings are not good for, for Rick. i got to have my tea first. You know, before anything else happens, I tell the kids, I go bumping into the kitchen, don't talk to me, let me get my tea, I'll be with you in a moment. <laughs> let me wake up, I'm not quite there. I remember in college, Cheryl and I tried and, and desperately and failed miserably to, to meet for morning devotions. Let's meet before, you know, the, the cafeteria opens and we'll open the Bible together, we'll study God's Word and we'll pray together and we did it like twice. And then months would go by. Let's try to meet again in the morning. And we, we want to go morning by morning like, you know, like Jesus did. And phew, couldn't do it. And I began to realize why as a college student. Because to get up and meet with the Lord early in the morning um, really requires that you get a little bit of sleep at night. <laughs> I've learned a few things over the years. That's just one of them. bit of wisdom for you there. But there's a key principle here for disciples. And you've got to not miss this. The more time we spend in the dark, the harder it is to wake up to the light. And it's not just the physical thing of going to bed on time so you can wake up early. The more time you spend in dark things, the more difficult it will be for you to come to Jesus in the light. And that means whatever you do, it means the magazines that you read. It means the movies that you watch. It means the television shows that you follow. It means the music that you listen to. It means the people that you spend time with. The more you are in the dark, the more difficult it's going to be to awaken morning by morning as a disciple in the light which Jesus provides. It's too bright. And so you find yourself not going there. Or going less and less often. And that's a problem for many weary disciples. I love Jesus. Why am I just so... Tired. Why is it so hard to, to get motivated with, with Jesus' things? Well, probably because you're spending too much time in the dark. But there's a remedy for this. Listen. He awakens me morning by morning, does not talk about morning prayers. It is far bigger than that. Morning by morning by morning by morning. Gang, this implies the constancy of the father-son relationship that Jesus had. The constancy. He awakens me morning by morning. That means one morning when He awakes to the next morning when He awakes again. He is with the Father. He's with the Lord. Jesus said in John 8.29, He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. Well, Jesus, how do you always do the things that are pleasing to Him? Well, I'm always with Him. So I'm always thinking about pleasing Him. How about you? I know in my life, the less I am with Him, the less I think about pleasing Him. 
But when I'm with Him, when I'm spending time with Jesus, when I'm walking with my Lord, that tends to be right at the front of my mind. Will this make Him happy? Will this bring Him joy? Will He be excited about this? If I am with Him. And didn't Jesus say, I'm with you always? Even to the very end of the age? What I'm saying is this. The disciple's ear is not limited to occasional input. It has to be open to constant teaching. Always listening. Always learning. Always open to the voice of the Lord in your life. The disciple's ear. We need to bust out of something here, gang. We've got to stop this whole Sunday Jesus mentality. I come once a week and I pick up what I need. Oh, you're talking about me going on Wednesday night too. I'm saying we got to bust out of the Wednesday Jesus mentality. Well, I go every Sunday morning and every Wednesday night. How much are you asking for? We need to, to do away with just the Jesus only a Bible study mentality. Okay, wait, I'm now going Sunday morning and Wednesday night and I'm going to Bible study on top of that. Isn't that enough? <laughs> Gang, we've got to get away from Jesus in the morning only mode. Sunday, Wednesday, Bible study. And every morning? And that's not enough? Exactly. It's not enough. It's not enough. We need to get into the mode of Jesus all the time. Jesus, whatever I'm doing, I'm with Him. Always. That is living morning by morning as a disciple. That's having the ear of a servant. Always attuned to what Jesus is about. But there's more to the servant's ear. As we hear the discipleship model of the servant of the Lord expressed even more fully in the next verse, verse 5, he says, The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. If you don't want to turn back, keep walking with Him, morning by morning. Be constantly in His presence. Now, he says, The Lord God has opened my ear. And you got to think that this is not the way probably we take it in our culture. He's opened my ear. Oh, okay, he's, he's cleared out the waxy gunk so I can hear him better. It's not what he's saying. We're not talking about moving from deafness to hearing. The Lord God has opened my ear. I, I hear him more clearly now. No, this is the servant's ear that has been opened. The servant's ear has been opened. The Hebrew word is patak, and it means to carve or engrave. The servants here. Some of you Bible students may remember in Exodus 21, God gave a prescription, parameters on the idea of hired servitude. Of hiring a slave as they would do in Hebrew times. I don't think God was ever pro-slavery. But He knew that it was going on and much of what He brought in the law was setting parameters so that everybody in every walk of life could be treated fairly. Listen to this. He says in Exodus 21 verse 2, If you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve for six years, but on the seventh he shall go free as a man without payment. If he comes alone, he shall go out alone. If he's the husband of a wife, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife, and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children belong to her master, and he shall go out alone. Listen. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, and my wife, and my children, I will not go out as a free man, then his master shall bring him to God. And then he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear, open his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him permanently. And that is what I believe this is being talked about here in the servant's song. The servant's ear is opened, he says, punctured, probably ringed. 
to reveal that He is an indentured servant. And in that context, listen again, the Lord God has opened my ear and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. Why? Because Jesus says, I was indentured. Because my ear was pierced. Such is the attitude of the servant of the Lord. Paul in Philippians 2.6, although he existed in the form of God, Jesus did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. I like the King James translation. It says he made himself of no reputation. Reputation didn't matter for Jesus. Only servitude. And he emptied himself, taking the form, Paul says, of a bond servant. Well, a bond servant in Hebrew lingo and Hebrew understanding had a pierced ear. An ear that had been opened. So that he belonged to his master and would forever. But listen to how this all comes together. Exodus 21.6 tells of the servant whose ear is pierced. Psalm chapter 40 verse 6 refers to the servant attitude saying, Psalm 40 verse 6, Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired, but my ears you have opened. My ears you have opened. Now what's really interesting to me here is the Hebrew writer takes it a step further. The Hebrew writer in the New Testament misquotes Psalm 40 verse 6, but he does it on purpose. Listen to him, chapter 10 verse 5 of the book of Hebrews. Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but but a body you have prepared for me. That's not what Psalm 40 verse 6 says. He says, my ears you have opened. The Hebrews writer says, but my body you have prepared. A body you have prepared for me. Gang, the servitude attitude of Jesus involved more than the piercing of an ear. You know it involved the piercing of a body. His hands, his feet, his side, pierced through for our transgressions as the indentured servant of the Lord. And why? Why would Jesus do that? Listen again to what the servant in the law of Moses says. I love my master and my wife, and my children, and I do not want to go out from them. Jesus was pierced for exactly those reasons. He loves the Father, He loves His bride, and His children too. The servant of the Lord. And He loves us all so much, listen to verse 6, that I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation, And from spitting. He has the tongue of disciples. He has the ear of a servant. And he wore the face of suffering. The face of suffering. With this piece of the prophetic puzzle, things take a very ugly turn. I gave my back to those who strike. My cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. John 19, verse 1 says, Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I'm bringing him out to you so that you may know I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Translation, look at the loser. Look at this nothing. Pilate was trying to find a way not to kill Jesus. And so he scourged him and had him brutalized and brought him out so broken down, so humiliated 
so battered and bruised that Pilate assumed there'd be an ounce of compassion in the people and they'd say, ah, let him go, that's enough. And they didn't. They shouted all the more, crucify him. Look at the loser. Charles Spurgeon says, we have before us the language of prophecy. But it is as accurate as though it has been written at the moment of the event. Isaiah might have been one of the evangelists. So exactly does he describe what our Savior endured. I gave my back to those who strike. Scourging. And many of you know scourging involved 39 lashes. The 40 lashes minus one. Why that? Because they figured 40 would kill somebody. So we'll stop at 39. 39 lashes on the back with a cat of nine tails. The idea, many of you know this cat of nine tails, strips of leather with chunks of bone and metal and glass embedded in them, and they would lash across the back and then drag 39 times. But the idea behind scourging wasn't just to inflict pain, it was to force confession. That's why they did it. To force a confession out of the guy, finally after all the pain they would cry out, I did it, okay, I'm guilty. And they did it this way. First lash, bam, drag across the back. If he confessed something toward the crime, the next lash would be a little lighter. If he confessed more, the next lash would be lighter. But if he didn't confess, every lash was worse than the one before. With each refusal to confess, and remember, Jesus did not open his mouth. With every refusal to confess the crime, the lashes would get worse. I gave my back to those who strike. There was only one thing Jesus had to confess in His scourging, and that was His love for you and for me. I gave my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. In the Middle East of Jesus' day, to pluck out the beard was one of the most humiliating things that could be done to a man, especially to a Jew. To pluck out the beard was... Not just brutal, it was shameful. The Gospel writers actually leave out that humiliating detail. But we know it happened because Isaiah wrote about it. Isaiah gave us the heads up. It was also Isaiah who would write in Isaiah 52.14, His appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. And so they tore his beard out. By the way, this is the only physical description we have of Jesus in the Bible. We know he had a beard. And the only reason we know he had a beard was so we know that he had it torn out of his face. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. And this is is shame upon shame. Tearing out the beard and then spitting in the face. Which is exactly what happened. Matthew 26, 67. They spat in his face and beat him with their fists and others slapped him and they said, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? And he didn't turn away. He took it all full force. I've told my kids, spitting is one of the things in my house that I will not tolerate. Kids get mad at each other, the little ones. And Naomi and David are learning this right now. He took my cereal! You know? (laughs) Not in our house. And it's something my dad said to me when I was a kid, and it stuck all these years. I spat at my brother one time, and my dad came down hard. And I was trying to figure out what's so bad. I mean, I know it's gross, but beyond that, what's so bad? And I will never forget my dad saying, Rick, when you spit on your brother, remember that the, the Romans and the Jews spat on Christ. And I never forgot that. To spit on someone is to do what was done to Jesus. And he took the whole thing full force. Who is this loser? 
How can he be king? And again, we, we understand the prophetic struggle for the Jewish people at the time. Looking at this brutalized man going, this does not look like Messiah. How could this be Messiah the king? The one who comes in triumph, the one who reigns. How can he look like this? But for all the brutality and deformity on this face of suffering, verse 7 says, For the Lord God helps me, therefore I am not disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. And so on the face of suffering we see the eyes of determination. The eyes of determination. With steely-eyed resolve, Jesus set His face like flint. He would not turn back. His body broken. His face was battered. He looked like a loser in every way except in His eyes. If you could stand at the foot of the cross and look at the eyes of the suffering one, you would not see defeat. Possibly one of the most ironic things ever seen in the history of man. Someone who is suffering brutal, brutal death and absolute shame but look completely victorious in his eyes. Eyes of determination. Strangely victorious at the cross. In fact, I think at the cross there were, there were two things that would have told you Jesus had full control. The words that he spoke and the look in his eyes. What did Jesus see with these eyes of determination? Well, first off, he saw vindication. Jesus was able to look straight through the cross and see His own vindication. Hebrews 12.2 says, for the, Who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy set before Him. He looks right through the crucifixion and sees on the other side, He sees His vindication. What's His vindication? You are. Those who are saved by what He did. The joy set before Him. He is vindicated in this. Verse 8 goes on and says, He who vindicates me is near me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up to each other. Who has a case against me? Let him draw near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who is he who condemns me? Behold, they will all wear out like a garment and the moth will eat them. And suddenly we're back in the courtroom. But suddenly we're not there before the convicted criminal on the cross. We're in the courtroom with the Son of God saying, Let's talk about this. You want to contend with me? Let's get face to face. It's no longer the tongue of disciples we hear. It is the voice of a determined defense. And he now is warning the enemies of God. He's the one who's turned this whole thing around. And he's saying, you will not last if you contend with me. You won't last. The Hebrew writer, again, speaks of Jesus. He quotes from Psalm 102 and from right here, Isaiah 50. In Hebrews chapter 1 verse 11 saying, They will perish, but you remain. They all will become old like a garment. And like a mantle, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they also will be changed. But you are the same. And your years will not come to an end. Jesus' determined eyes saw vindication. Jesus' eyes also saw illumination. Verse 10. He says, Who among you fears the Lord? that obeys the voice of His servant, that walks in darkness and has no light, let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Listen closely, gang. He's talking to believers here. He's talking to servants of the Lord. Those who fear the Lord, those who obey the voice of His servant, Jesus. But note what He says in the middle of the verse, that walks in darkness and has no light. 
He is not shifting gears mid-sentence and talking about a sinner or talking about someone rebellious. He's talking about an obedient servant of the Lord who doesn't understand what's happening in their lives. Who is suddenly in the dark. Have you been there? I obey you, Father. I fear you. I believe in you. Why is this happening to me? Why can't I see beyond what's going on? Why am I in the dark here, Lord? He's talking to despondent believers, depressed Christians, despairing followers. And if you are a Christian struggling with dark things, what he says to you this morning is trust in the name of the Lord and rely on your God. You don't have to be able to see your way clearly. You just trust Him. It may be dark all around you, but He is the same God who loved you back in the light when you first gave Him your life. He has not changed. Circumstances change. He doesn't. And if you're in hard times, you look through those, you trust in the Lord. Very simply, trust Him. I don't understand. By the way, trust does not require understanding. I don't get it, but I will stand with you. Remember what we talked about earlier. The Sunday Jesus attitude. It ain't enough. The Sunday-Wednesday-Jesus model comes up short. The Sunday-Wednesday-Jesus in Bible study, Jesus in the morning, and you're still in that dark place. Gang, in these last days, we are going to be needing to be with Him all the time if we're going to make it through. We We no longer have the luxury of weekly church attendance. It's not even to touch those who come once or twice a year. And I'm not, again, just talking about being in this place. I'm talking about being with the Lord Jesus all the time, even in the dark. Even without understanding. Even in pain. I trust You, Lord. I trust You. I don't get it, but I trust You. And this applies to every single one of us here today. Is there anyone here who thinks they spend enough time with Jesus? 1 John verse. Chapter 1, verse 5 says, This is the message that we have heard from here and, and, and announced to you that God is light. And in Him there is no darkness at all. And if we say we have fellowship with Him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. My friends, we live again in days where the call to obedient discipleship cannot be left like so many bulletins on the floor of the barn after Sunday service. We've got to be with Him always. He is calling you, calling me to be with Him always, regardless of what we're doing. Jesus, through determined eyes, saw His vindication. He saw illumination, simply saying, trust the Lord. You're walking in darkness, get illuminated. Just trust. I will reveal to you what I'm doing. It may take some time, but I'm going to show you that I'm still God. You just trust me. Jesus saw one more thing with those determined eyes. Jesus saw condemnation. Verse 11. Behold, all you who kindle a fire... who encircle yourselves with fire brands. Walk in the light of your fire and among the brands you have set ablaze. This you will have from my hand. You will lie down in torment. I didn't want to do that verse. I like the way verse 10 ends. 
Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Boom! Have a great Sunday. But that's not how the song ends. The song ends with Jesus saying, You will lie down in torment. And my friends, it doesn't matter what liberal scholars are saying today. It doesn't matter what those who don't want to accept truth are saying today. It doesn't matter how everybody's trying to water things down. The Bible clearly teaches there is a hell. There is an eternal condemnation. And if we deny that, we deny our need for salvation. I'm not saying there's a hell with glee, you know, <laughs> people are going to burn. No. But Christians need to know there's a hell, so we'll be a little more motivated to love people into the kingdom. And non-believers need to come to the realization that there's a hell. We were watching the, the final episode of House. I don't know if you've ever watched House. I stopped for a while, because, but it actually got a little better, so we started watching the last season. The final episode of House was very interesting. I won't tell you the, the whole thing. But here's this, this doctor, this brilliant doctor, who doesn't believe there's anything after death. Eternal nothingness. And you know, if you believe there's eternal nothingness, you know what comes out of that? All the murder-suicides we've been seeing lately. If you believe there's nothing after this life, then whatever you do in this life, just do, because there's not going to be any consequence for it anyway, and morality goes in the toilet. There is more reason for understanding the biblical, the biblical description of hell than simply that this place of torment by this judgmental God who wants to burn people up. That is not why it's there. It affects our morality. It affects our passion. It affects our understanding of the world. There is a hell. But you know what he's saying here? Look at verse 11 again. Behold, all you who kindle a fire. Huh. Guess who lit the fire first? You did. I did. That's why we need grace. We started the fire. The fires that will end up as the fires of hell gang before a person ever reaches the torment of eternity, they have already laid down in their own torment. And that's part of what he's saying. You will lie down in torment if you contend with me. Ultimately, your life is going to be a life of torment. Before you ever even get to the hell issue, your life is tormented. Your spirit struggles. You have no direction. And when you're in the dark, you don't even have the hope of anything to trust in but yourself. And consequently, yourself is in the dark, so that doesn't do you any good. You will lie down in torment. This is a self-started fire kindled by a person's own choices. Isaiah said back in chapter 9, verse 18, wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It even sets the thickets of the forest aflame and they roll upward in a column of smoke. When people get burned out on life, it's because they started the fire. God didn't. But He warns, you'll lie down in torment because of it. Some of you may have read the old book by Robert Fulgham. It begins with this interesting and bizarre little story. A tabloid newspaper carried the story, stating simply that a small-town emergency squad was summoned to a house where smoke was pouring from an upstairs window. The crew broke in and found a man in smoldering bed. After the man was rescued and the mattress doused, the obvious question was asked, How did this happen? The man's response, I don't know. It was on fire when I lay down on it. Okay, uh, Prometheus, 
Why? Why would you lay down on a burning bed? What an idiot! Why would anyone lie down on a burning bed? But people do. People light the fire with wickedness and sin choices and then lie down in it. And that's what he's talking about. You will lie down in torment. The servant of the Lord, I truly believe, gang, he is not threatening here. He is warning here. Get out of the burning bed. Get up. Get out of the burning bed. Come out of the darkness. I mean, listen to the, to the words of, of the servant in terms of his actions, okay? With the tongue of disciples, he comes speaking our language so we could hear him, right? With the ear of a bondservant, he loved his master, his bride, the church, and all of his children. With the face of suffering, he bore our sorrows. And with eyes of determination, he set his face to see our salvation all the way through to the end. Everybody wants to win. And what may have seemed like a superficial thing as we started this teaching, listen, I believe God bred that into us. That desire to win. That competitive spirit that says, I don't want to be a loser. God puts this in the spirit, in the nature of man and woman, so that we know there is a winning team. There is a winning Savior. The servant of the Lord lost so that we, so that anybody could win. And so Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.24, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in a way that you may win. And servants of the Lord, He is calling us this morning, do not walk in darkness. Get out of the burning bed. Don't lie down in torment. Trust in the name of the Lord and run with His servant to victory. Father, we thank You for showing us in Jesus the face of the servant. Lord, we thank You that You chose to do things the way You did. We don't fully understand why or how this all was brought together so beautifully. We just praise You for doing it. We lift up the name of Jesus as the One who made Himself though King of glory made Himself of no reputation and took all the bruises, all the slaps, the spitting, the plucking of the beard, the brutality that we so truly deserve, the torment, Father, that would be ours. He took on His own back. Thank You, Jesus. Thank You for saving us. Thank You for Your grace. And may we, as your servants, walk morning to morning with you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.